could say, let's pray like Cole does, but that's played out. We, you know the tricks now, don't you? Good morning. Welcome. Welcome to Redemption Church. Um, I, I thought nobody would be here today, but I guess it's just us who don't have access to a lake house, right? <laughs> but welcome. We're in this season in the church calendar that's sometimes called Easter Tide. It's these weeks after Easter. And we are actually in the seventh and final Sunday of Easter. Next week, in fact, is Pentecost Sunday. But um, the lectionary today gives us a portion of what is Jesus's high priestly prayer. It's the culmination of his farewell discourse to his disciples. And the setting is the upper room. It's on Maundy Thursday. And Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet. He's foreseen Judas's betrayal. He's predicted Peter's denial, and he promised the disciples the Holy Spirit. And he's teaching them at this place in John that Kristen read for us as if time is running out, because it kind of is. And here in these final moments before his arrest, he, in, in verse 17, says, he looks toward the heaven and he prays, the Bible tells us. Some people call it the high priestly prayer or the other Lord's prayer, the one we don't really memorize, you know, or recite on Sunday mornings. It's certainly not as polished or poetic, I think, as the Our Father. And I don't think it flows. It's a little long, and it's a bit hard to follow. But while I believe the disciples were meant to hear Jesus' words, overhear those words as he prays, Jesus' tone has an urgency and a passion that is really, it's quite private. And I feel sometimes like when I read it, it's like when you overhear somebody praying out loud. It's kind of a private thing. And so his last words before he's arrested and crucified, Jesus doesn't take advantage of you know, any teaching moment like you might think, or he doesn't awe the disciples with a miracle or even really contemplate their futures as disciples. But with this Lord's Prayer, he just renders his heart. It's very earnest with what I guess we could call really his last will and testament. And what does he pray? He prays that, that they might be one. As, I are, as you are in me and I am in you, brought into complete unity. So Jesus tells us here what he is, his intent for the church is, to be unified, that we be one. But as you know, we haven't done an incredible job of that, have we? I don't mean us here in this room, just at large, and not just recently, I know you can probably think of a million things that could come to your mind right now about disunity in the church, but it has a pretty robust and long history. In fact, I kind of went down some rabbit holes when I was looking around at the history of disunity in the church, not because I couldn't find anything, it was readily available, I, I didn't have to look too terribly hard, but uh, I found loads of stuff, I didn't have, you know, have to search I don't think I expected some of the kinds of obscure things, though, that I did discover. I found, I'm going to show you a lovely uh, print from the 14th century. I wanted to show you, but I was unwilling, really, to show you an uncensored version. That's my own censorship, because, you know, it is church. You can certainly Google it later, but it was a print made by Protestant Christians. It's a print of a zealous Catholic priest, maybe a little hard to see, named Johann Cochleus. Cochleus, who was a very harsh critic of Martin Luther, 
Uh, and there's this Yale, this Yale guy named Carlos Ayre who wrote about this print in his massive study that coincided with the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. Carlos Ayre says, this image links scatology with eschatology, all for the sake of simple folk. This is one of the most outrageous of all Reformation images. It reduces the work of Cocleus, a Catholic who attacked Martin Luther, to fecal matter. In this image, the devil defecates into Cocleus's mouth, and in turn, the devil excretes books out of his rear end. This is, these are not my words, these are his. As, <laughs> as devils dance in celebration of this process, a monk and a prince pick up the books, bring, bringing the Reformation to the lowest possible level. Of course, Ayer admits that Martin Luther would not, was not responsible for everything that was printed, but was certainly connected to it and would have, would have in fact, uh, benefited greatly from it. Um, the second one was, uh, did you guys ever see the movie uh, Silence? Did you hear it was like a handful of uh, years ago? It was this movie based on an incredible work of historical fiction by Shosak Shosako Endo. The book and the film depict a time that I really, it was really new to me, I did not know this, in Japanese history in the 16th and 17th centuries where Christianity was literally banned from Japan. The Japanese authorities, in their attempt to eradicate Christianity, were very creative in designing new forms of torture for Christians. I mean, really bad stuff, like that would make Nero blush. They were good at it. And in my reading of the novel, you know, I just want to agonize as I read and know this story about God's silence in this era. But it seems that the message might be a little more straightforward. You know why the church was being eradicated in Japan? Well, on page 14 of Endo's novel, we learned that it was a Protestant Englishman, Will Adams, who lost, this is a quote, no time in assuring the shogun that many European monarchs distrusted these meddlesome Jesuit priests and expelled them from their kingdoms. It was a Protestant's suggestion. It was a Christian who planted the seeds of hate and discord for the shogun. They helped create this, this hellscape that the book and film depict. It was torture of Japanese peasants brought to you by inter-Christian discord. Of course, the Jesuits were in this part of the world as well. They spread the gospel among Native Americans, many of whom received the gospel for themselves. But it was hard to learn that one of the reasons that the gospel was hindered among Native Americans was Christian disunity. In fact, a US official once asked the famous Nez Perce Indian chief, Chief Joseph, why he had banned missionaries from his reservations. And he said it was because missionaries, this is him speaking, will teach us to quarrel about God as Catholics and Protestants do. We do not want to learn that. We must quarrel with men at times about things of this earth, but we never quarrel about the Great Spirit. We do not want to learn that. These are just a couple of what I found interesting examples. I'm not, and of course you know I'm not saying theology doesn't matter, but Protestants, Orthodox, Catholics, we all share blame. There's blood on all of our hands. But it's hard for me, at least, to hear of Chief Joseph's lament and not think of the wisdom of Jesus in John 17. I think about how we as a church have divided ourselves up in so many shameful ways, and the world responds with contempt. And who can really blame them? The world looks at the church and doesn't see usually a group of folks 
who are entrenched in a life of oneness, do they? I think most people would probably agree that the world sees a group who call themselves Christians and then fight and fuss about whose interpretation, whose theology, whose information is superior than the others. And at times, you know, we don't just fuss and fight, we actually just walk away from each other, just leave. And those are, uh, you know, obscure things. There's a ton of recent stuff you already know. Really, even right here, not at Redemption, but in a way that touches Redemption Church. Um, There was this little group called the Good Faith Network, who we've talked about a lot over the last year. It's an interfaith group that we have linked up with to try to push for some change in Johnson County. And almost before it got off the ground, you know, there was a little bit of trouble. When a Catholic priest out of, an, out of the network ha, ha, found out that they had hired an organizer who was in a same-sex relationship, in a marriage, they abandoned the work. They pulled out their support for a group who was fighting for really incredibly vulnerable people right here in our city and in our county. They just couldn't get past it. And don't get me wrong, you know, I as an individual am certainly just as guilty. My issues are probably different, but I am fully culpable. There are a lot of people in the church at large that I find a very hard time finding commonality with or finding common ground with. Because what, what was on Jesus' heart there in those last few minutes, though, in our scripture today was not theological oneness. It was not doctrinal oneness or political or ideological oneness. It wasn't even morale, moral or ethical unity. It was the unity and the oneness that flows from a deep down experience of Jesus. So I can't be the one singing the Queen Latifah song, you know, and not look in the mirror when I read John 17. You know the UNITY song? Not a lot of Latifah fans. (laughs) Noted. (laughs) But throughout the book of John, there is this reference to the, and this is a bit of an aside, but to the beloved disciple. There's a lot of theories about who this is. It's probably John himself. A lot of people believe that. But this unnamed disciple could have been a symbolic figure. But, you know, I would actually like to think that it's the disciple isn't named because it's supposed to be you and me sitting with Jesus in this really intimate setting after the Last Supper, speaking with him and listening to him pray. Do you remember those little books that parents used to make their kids? They probably still do. I never did it for my kiddos, but they would have a picture in the back of the book where it was pasted in the back, and every page you turned, you could see your face on the book, so you were part of the story. I like to think that's what the Gospel of John is like. Like it has this little hole in the pages where I can see my face on every page because we are the beloved disciple. We are the unnamed disciple. And he's praying for us here. He says... Early on in John 17, not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. So in previous chapters, he had been praying for the disciples. But now he says he's praying for us, people who for generation after generation have heard the message, believed the message, and passed on the message. We are the fruit of of the faithful labor of men and women over the generations. When he prays here, it's for us. And the book of John is plugging along, describing and revealing who Jesus is, describing how God is at work in Jesus, until we get to about, at least this is my feeling, John 13, he kind of slams on the brakes. It's like it all of a sudden is all the playback is like halftime, you know? It seems to slow down, and I think the reason it slows down 
is Jesus is preparing his disciples for life without him. And that's why it's called the farewell discourse. He does in this section three really critical things, I think, to, pre to prepare the disciples. First, he physically models. If you remember um, him getting down on his knees, he ties a towel around his waist, and in the position of a servant, he washes their dirty, you know, unpedicured, sandal-wearing feet. And this, for Jesus, was not humiliating. Jesus is saying in this kind of demonstration, this is what it looks like to participate in my kingdom. And if you'll remember, Peter says, no way. You're not washing my feet. You will never wash my feet. And actually, Jesus reacts kind of harshly because this is not a small thing to him. And in, in classic, he, Jesus says to Peter, unless I wash your feet, you share no part of me. And in Peter's style, he says, okay, then wash my whole body. But Jesus is showing them that this is the currency in the economy of the kingdom, humble service, where he empties himself for the sake of the relationship. And then the second thing he, thing he does is he begins to give them instructions. He teaches them, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. And then the third and final thing he does is he prays. That's the final thing he does for them to prepare them for life without him is prayer. And this is our passage today. I'm sorry it took me like five pages to get there, but Jesus ends his ministry by praying for unity. And it's the last prayer, in fact, that we have recorded. And like a Messiah who is preparing his people for his absence, the things he prays in the very last moments, the things he asks God for for the last time, you can imagine are incredibly important to him. So I read this prayer with, with that lens. When he prays, it's for us. And like seeing our, our picture on every page of John, so what does he pray? He prays that they may be one, as you are in me and I am in you, brought into complete unity. So what is Jesus' intent for the church? He tells us straight away, it is that we be unified, so that the world will know he was sent by God. Jesus is really clear by how you love one another. It's a, an extraordinary thing to think about being one, isn't it? That our, our unity would actually be reflective of the unity between the Father and the Son. And I'm so interested in, in the phrase in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one. I think that that might be the critical factor. The unity we are to have is about sharing our lives and finding our lives hidden in God. I'm fascinated by uh, the prepositions, the use of prepositions, especially in the New Testament. In, Christ in me, in you. Jesus saw himself in the Father, and the Father was in the Son. And we are called to be in them, and I think in one another, and to live in that unity. So I guess the question is, do we see ourselves in each other? When I look at you, do I see myself in you? And when you look at me, is there a chance you see yourself reflected here? And I think our move is, is often to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not like that person. That's not really me. And, and even a kinder, gentler version of that is, you know, it's fine for you, but not for me. Um, either way, we are doing, what we're doing is defining ourselves by how we are different. We begin to evaluate, am I better maybe or a little worse? And if we feel better, we can be a little bit judgy or critical. Ask me how I know. And if we feel worse, 
we feel shame. We just go right to shame. We try to stack up the ways which we qualify. And that is not how Christ invited us into unity, by defining ourselves by our differences. To be clear, my point is not that we should not care about morality or ethics. My point is that you can get a lot of other things really wrong and get oneness right and, and experience the transforming love and power of Jesus. And alternatively, you can get everything else right and get this part wrong, the oneness and the unity wrong, and it's, it's kind of everything. The prayer for unity in John gets at the heart of God. And Jesus, who is about to be crucified on a cross, and his death is going to absorb all the brokenness and all the sin, all the messes we've made, and, and our relationships. His death will absorb all the sin that has divided us from one another. And Jesus, in his unselfish disregard for his own life, will reunite us and bring us back together. Jesus is going to the cross. He, he knows it. He knows that through his death, the sin that divides us will be erased. The opportunity to be reconciled to God and then to one another will, for the first time, become possible. The result will be a new kind of humanity, and we will be united across the barriers that we have traditionally separated ourselves by. The, the race, the class, custom, gender. You see, the church in the wake of Jesus' death is about to actually explode and become this crazy, diverse place. And Jesus is preparing them for that reality. He is creating a new kind of humanity. And as we, we kind of turn from John 17 to the writing of Paul, it's, it's hard not to talk about Paul when you talk about unity. Paul is beginning to understand what Jesus is talking about. He oftentimes writes to communities filled with Jews and Gentiles, people who are very divided, people who are not in relationship with one another. And Paul tries to first understand and then explain to others what Jesus has done. So in Ephesians 2, we find Paul saying, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. So Jesus removes the stuff that separates us and gives us something that unites us. He gives us himself. He shows us what it looks like to live in response to him who is our peace. He takes our sin and our brokenness, all the stuff that divides us and has broken those relationships, and he gives us himself to reconcile to one another. He goes on in chapter, uh, or in verse 15 rather, he has abolished the law so that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through, through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility. He came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. Through him we have access. We have access in one spirit to the Father. I love that statement. And I think his purpose was to create a new humanity. And Paul in the scripture is really captivated by, by, the, by the resurrected Jesus. He's brought into himself this new story. And his life and his heart are changed. He spent his life dividing himself according to his own schemes of righteousness, Paul did. 
But then he writes in Philippians 3, yet whatever gains I have had, these I regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ. And here's the preposition, be found in him. Not by the ways I have differentiated myself and sort of made my life work. He says, whatever is to my profit, whatever accolades I have, I have received, I consider it all loss for the sake of Christ. It's rubbish. And what we see in the New Testament is Paul going around the first century Mediterranean world, telling everyone God has revealed himself in Christ. A new kingdom with a new king. A new people, and it's called the church. And the hallmark of that church is that they are to live in right relationship with their creator and with one another and to bring the world into reconciliation with God. So Paul has this ministry as an apostle. He's cruising around and establishing new communities that model this reality, where people who were formerly against one another uh, are now reconciled. All the former categories that had kept people apart and divided them are being erased. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. If you read the, the book of Acts, Paul goes around proclaiming the new gospel, the new story, of what it means to be made in the image of God, relieving people of the burden of their sin and giving them a new story in Christ. And these new communities begin to form. And it's awesome, it's wonderful, that is as long as Paul is sort of there. You know, Paul is not primarily a pastor, he's an apostle, so he would spend a little time there and then call this sort of new community into, into being and then he's off doing it somewhere else. He has to leave after a few months. And as Paul leaves and does his apostolic work in other places, that identity begins to fray. They regress into those categories that used to define them and divide them. And their communities kind of begin to fall apart. And a good chunk, actually, of the New Testament is a result of Paul writing letters to those churches, reminding them of the gospel and reminding them of who they are now in Christ. The old categories they used to use no longer even exist. In his letter to the Galatians in chapter 3, it says, There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ. In fact, the, the theme of every one of Paul's letters is unity. In those letters, he confronts all of those categories, all the things that would divide people. He shows how in Christ those lines of division are no longer adequate in showing what Christ is up to. For Paul, there's only one new category. There is one way th to view people in Christ. In 2 Corinthians, it's probably my favorite Pauline passage. He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. Has this extraordinary thing to say, doesn't he? From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything is old. It has passed away and everything has become new. Paul is making this profound theological claim. He's saying 
that God's love is so radical, it's so relentless, and so indiscriminate, and it is that love that propels Paul to do the things that he does. And we see the reality of this as we see God's work of love on the cross. Jesus did not die for a select few, but for all, Paul says. And because Jesus died for all, we are called actually to no longer see anyone from a worldly point of view. We no longer look at each other in those categories, with those labels, with those divisions. Christ died for all, therefore all have died. Those categories are, are just gone. We reject the labels now because they're obsolete in the eyes of Jesus. And we only have now one label, one lens, and one category. And Paul says it is this, it's new creation. The old has gone and the new is here. Our lives are now a soil, kind of, from which God's new creation is being brought forth, being incubated. We don't exist in the old categories that we have defined ourselves in. We are now in Christ. This is good news. And it's really important because I think we can begin to actually see people and not just labels. If we can just get there, you know? When we see people from those labels that we have put on them or sometimes they have put on themselves... We actually are able to drop our judgments, stop making judgments, and come face to face with someone whom we can encounter and see them in ourselves and us in them. It's then in humility, I think, and in vulnerability that we actually can have communion. And two, because each person is a reflection of their creator. When we make ourselves vulnerable and we also see these aspects of our creator that have been previously hidden from us. Do we see each other in the face of Christ looking back, or do we only see our judgments when we look at each other? I wonder if we could identify the walls kind of of hostility that we have erected around us. I wonder if Paul were to write a letter to Redemption Church, or to the church in Olathe, or to Mandy, what might he need to confront in us? What's getting in the way of the unity of the people? and the reality of what God wants to reflect in us. Where are we refusing and with whom are we refusing to see ourselves in the other? Brian McLaren wrote this book, uh, How to Heal Our Divides. And in it, he quotes Annie Leonard, who famously said, Annie Leonard is the uh, executive director of Greenpeace. She said, there is no away. When you throw something away, it must go somewhere. Brian says, what is true of our environment is also true of our social environment. We identify someone as alien, as other, as outsider or enemy. We think we can just throw them away, but there is no away. We are neighbors, and we can't escape that fact. Eventually, Brian says, we will need to learn what Dr. King said. The only way to get rid of an enemy permanently is to make him your friend. So can you identify people in your life that you've labeled or separated yourself from? What might it look like to see them in Christ? Whether it's like a particular person who you know, who has a name, or maybe a group of people, class of people, that you've made your decisions about already. What might it look like to see them through the eyes of faith in Jesus as the ground from which new creation might be beginning to grow? And of course, I'm not saying that there aren't differences that need to be addressed. I'm not talking about engaging in like real difference. I'm just wondering what we're focused on. I'm wondering what I'm focused on. Are we focused on that which divides us or that which unites us? 
Are we focused on Christ who is making all things new? What does that really mean for us? Is it the love of God that compels us as we move through our lives? And are we willing to see others as Christ sees us? Those are the questions for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, uh, we pray because Jesus did in those last moments before his arrest, that your love would compel us to action. We thank you, God, that you put yourself in the position of a servant because your desire for a relationship was so profound that it propelled you into self-sacrifice. I'm grateful for those in my life who have made that move toward me, that have reflected your love in disarming ways and caused me to drop my judgments. Those that were able to see me not as I see myself, but as you see me. Thank you for your grace that you do not see us through the messes we have made, but through your love. And you have made provision for all of those messes and our sin through your death. May we be people who look at one another and the world around us through the lens of the gospel. And may your love compel us as we come to this table, Lord. In your name and for your sake, amen. We are going to receive communion now. (coughs) Sorry. And if you uh, call on the name of Jesus, you're welcome at this table. The way we do that is ushers will come forward and they'll release you row by row. And you can just come on up and uh, take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The ushers will say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can just respond with amen or I will remember. Uh, Before we do that, though, we'll read from 1 Corinthians what Paul told the church. For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is of new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink and means of your grace. As we receive it into your bodies, may we receive you once again. Come, live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. Then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast upon us and taste and see that you are good so that all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you come?